This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your chef, Peter Korchnak. Let me start with a confession. The title of this episode is a bit of a ruse. As you'll hear, there was no such thing as Yugoslav cuisine the way there is French cuisine or Thai cuisine. At best, Yugoslav cuisine was an amalgam of cuisines of Yugoslavia's constituent peoples, and an unofficial one at that, and those national cuisines could easily be subsumed under a grander umbrella of Balkan cuisine. There was Yugoslav cuisine the same way there is European cuisine. Now, there is nary a more representative, iconic even, and metaphorical Balkan dish than sarma, or stuffed cabbage. And today I'm gonna make one. I'm not a chef, I barely cook anything beyond breakfast. But last summer I decided to learn how to cook Balkan dishes. Of course, sarma was on the list. To walk me through the process of making sarma, I've recruited the help of an actual chef, Irina Janakievska, a Macedonia-born, London-based creator of Balkan Kitchen, a website where she explores Balkan cuisine of her ancestors and region and shares the recipes, including one for sarma. First, some background. Sarma is from the Turkish meaning to wrap. In the Balkans or in the region, generally sarma is made from leaves. The sarmas are what is then referred to as dolmas, so it's a family of stuffed vegetables onions, peppers, courgettes, leaves of various sorts. And and again, you find it in not just in Turkey or the Levant, you find it wider than that in various forms. In the Balkans, sarma is always used to mean anything that's made from leaves. So um, you could use fresh cabbage leaves, you can use sour cabbage leaves, sauerkraut, um, but, but whole. Um, you can use vine leaves and you use vine leaves in summer because that's when the vine leaves are freshest and youngest and, and it's seasonal. And also you can use chard. I always knew sarma as stuffed cabbage. In my native Slovakia, stuffed cabbage is a common dish called holubki in some areas. The Slovak holubki is golubki in Poland or holubci in the Ukraine. There are versions in Germany and Sweden, but to me it's a quintessential Balkan dish. You can find the dish in its myriad variations across the Balkans. There, I first tried it in Romania, where it's called sarmale, then in Serbia and Bosnia as sarma. I don't know if there have been any conflicts over the origins of sarma, but it reminds me of the story of the song. Some 20 years ago now, the Bulgarian filmmaker Adela Peeva set out to find the song's origin, only to find Albanians, Bosnians, Bulgarians, Greeks, Macedonians, Serbs and Turks all claimed it as theirs. Sarma is like that, it's from everywhere, but probably Ottoman, or Middle Eastern, or not. At any rate, if you want to get transported to the Balkans, whichever country or empire in existence or not, Sarma is your ticket. The preparation of, you know, sarma is probably a regional competitive sport who makes it best. It's a competitive sport even within families. You know, in my family, I remember very long debates about who made the best sarma, my grandmother or my mom. And, you know, and, and you have to kind of sit very quietly and be very objective and say they're not comparable because you both use slightly different methods to finish the dish. So, <laughs> so but they are both delicious. <laughs> and please make more. It reminds me of the Slovak Christmas staple kapusnica or sauerkraut soup. Every family makes it in its own way. Aide, let's make some sarma. First things first. The key for winter sarma is the sour cabbage. So households around the Balkans and around Yugoslavia will be now gearing up to prepare their cabbages um, for, for lacto-fermentation, which really is how you prepare the sour cabbage. 
again, it's an art form. Effectively, you're salting cabbages and, and, and fermenting them over time, and then they will last over winter. And households will be making anything from, you know, 10 kilos of cabbage to 60, 100 kilos of cabbage in barrels to be stored <laughs> for winter and for various dishes that are made in winter that use sour cabbage, sarma being one of them. I've got actually quite a good story about this. My grandmother in Skopje, in pre-earthquake Skopje, the the barrel for sarma would always be stored in the in the basement of the old house and in, in the old part of Skopje, um, because that was where it was coolest, um, as it was, you know, in many old houses. In post <laughs> 60s Skopje, in her brutalist apartment building, she would always make it in this giant barrel that lived on the balcony. <laughs> overlooking <laughs> this wonderful Kenzo Tange design Skopje, you know, and there was always a, you know, an element of looking after it. And so every once in a while, a hose pipe would be pulled out to circulate the liquid in the barrel and <laughs> you'd hear bubbling noises on the balcony. <laughs> Pickled cabbage leaves were the biggest hurdle in my Sarma saga. I didn't have time or energy to pickle them myself, so I resorted to buying a commercial product. Quite a long story short, I ended up with two different jars, one bought on Dazan, the other at a Balkan shop outside Seattle, both imported from Yanakievska's homeland, North Macedonia. The filling for the pickled cabbage leaves is much easier to source. Generally, it's filled with meat and rice. Um, the meat is generally a mix of either veal or beef mince and mix of beef and pork. But you can also make it fully vegan, uh, which a lot of people do for religious fasts before Christmas, for example. You can make it from onions and leeks and rice, and you can also add nuts, usually walnuts. And I, I've seen reference to some people using chestnuts as well. I go with a mix of beef and pork. Needless to say, a halal meat version would use no pork. And someday I'll make a vegetarian version as well. For now, let's get chopping. You always have to start with the sarma filling and you always start with sweating some finely chopped onion and or leek in some neutral oil like sunflower oil or olive oil until they're softened. That's one leek and one medium-sized white onion. While the onion and the leek are working up a sweat, let's get to know our chef a little better. My name is Irina Anakievska. I was born in Yugoslavia, um, in Skopje, the capital of North Macedonia, as it now is, but grew up in Kuwait. We moved there in the late 80s for my mother's work. So I mostly grew up there for a brief period because of the Gulf War in 1990-91. We then obviously returned to Kuwait in the wake of the Yugoslav conflicts. And then I came to study in the UK in 2001, which coincided with, at the time of civil war in North Macedonia. Jana Kievska studied international relations and history at the London School of Economics, focusing on the Cold War in the Balkans. She later became a corporate and finance lawyer and is now a consultant solicitor. So I would have more time to spend with my little one and my family in generally. And to finally give me the flexibility to pursue this dream of mine called the Balkan Kitchen Project. So the idea of it came about over 10 years ago after my grandmother passed away suddenly my mother and I were sitting, looking through her old cookbooks and all her recipes scribbled in notebooks and any spare bits of paper she could find, you know, remembering her. She was such an avid cookbook collector, something I've inherited, unfortunately. And she had one particular cookbook called Veliki Narodni Kuvar from 1956, which is the great national cookbook. As I was flicking through it, I found a recipe next to which my grandmother had written my date of birth and notes on how she'd made it for guests celebrating my arrival in the world. It was so touching. It, you know, it really struck me 
in that moment that I would never again be able to learn from her. So although she was such a meticulous list maker and writer and, you know, the cookbook itself is annotated beyond anything that is <laughs> imaginable, especially when it comes to recipes, I could never really watch her again bring these recipes to life and, and learn the things that seem so obvious to her that she didn't write them down. And so I thought, what if, what if as a way of remembering her and honoring her memory using these cookbooks she had and all her written down recipes and my mother's recipes and stories. I set out on this journey of teaching myself to cook like her, like my mother and the long line of inspiring Balkan women in my family. Starting on this journey was slow <laughs> um, because I was working rather a lot. I'd started to cook, I guess, as soon as I was old enough to reach my mother's and grandmother's kitchen tables, because that's simply what happens in a Balkan household. You are precariously perched on an invariably ancient kitchen stool. You watch and learn and help with certain tasks usually endless chopping and preparation of <laughs> vegetables and fruits, um, you know, or being given a piece of dough to knead to keep you out of trouble. And so for me, cooking, you know, as a, as a young professional in London became, you know, a way for me to be at home anywhere in the world. So exploring and recreating and sharing my food was a way to share a part of myself with people I loved so they too could experience the tastes of my childhood and understand me and where I came from and why this Yugoslavia of my childhood or why my, my country now as it, as it was then, you know, Macedonia was so important to me, despite the fact that I'd barely lived there. And it was a way that they too could taste and fall in love with these flavors that were so preserved in my memories and so iconic to me. This was kind of a slow burn project that I did personally, you know, experimenting on family and friends. And then around the time COVID lockdowns began in the UK, so around March, April 2020, I started to more actively showcase the results of, of the project on Instagram and finally got around to starting to blog about it. <laughs> and I guess here we are. <laughs> Indeed. I actually found Jana Kievska in the Balkan Kitchen on Instagram, at Balkan Kitchen. All right, now that our onion and leek are nicely sweated... You add something like cubed pancetta. So obviously you would not use pancetta in the Balkans, you would use a smoked meat but that is what is more <laughs> available around the world. I use smoked bacon, 75 grams, about a slice and a half, cut up into tiny cubes. And then you render that down to get some of the pork fat into the onions. What recipe was it that had the birthday of yours uh, marked next to it? It was something that is known as a princess cake. And it's something that I still have not worked up the courage to try because it requires skills of a trained pastry chef, which I have not yet developed. So it's on my list of things to make. I'm just working up the courage to try it for a special occasion. <laughs> on this sarma making occasion... Then you add your minced meat. I simply follow Jana Kievska's online recipe with 200 grams of minced beef and 125 grams of minced pork. And just let it cook. You need that caramelization on the meat as well, rather than steaming it. Because if you mess about with it too much, it'll end up going quite tough. And then just gently break it up and brown it. Then you turn your heat to low, add your spices. In Macedonia, we use sweet paprika a lot. Two tablespoons here. You can use things like Aleppo pepper or pulbiber, which is like a chili, um, a slightly aromatic chili. 
In Macedonia, would use something called bukovo pepper. And then you add herbs of your choice, a little bit of oregano, lots of parsley, stock powder, and you combine it all. I didn't have the Aleppo pepper and didn't add any chili flakes. I did use two tablespoons of finely chopped parsley, half a teaspoon of oregano, a pinch each of cumin, salt, and pepper, and for stock powder, I substituted chicken stock paste. If at any point your mixture is getting a little bit too sticky or sticking to the bottom of your pan, just add water to loosen it. But it doesn't need to be a wet mixture. You just need to make sure that you're not burning anything. And season it to your taste, making sure that you don't really over-season it because the cabbage leaves will be salty. While that's cooking, I'm curious about the Balkan aspect of the Balkan kitchen project. As a historian at heart, I also wanted to explore the history behind the food as well. What if my journey encompassed exploring the cuisine of the whole Balkan region. So how about a Balkan kitchen? So the word Balkan is very complicated and its use and derivatives of it, like Balkanization, have become synonymous with you know hatred, conflict, fragmentation of companies even. So following the disintegration of Yugoslavia in the wars of the 1990s, the, the stereotyping of us, the former Yugoslavs, uh, of our region and our history was was merciless. The Balkans became synonymous with Yugoslavia and we, the Yugoslavs, became defined by our conflicts. So as a child of Yugoslavia, I couldn't understand it. You know, I had grown up in this multi-ethnic, multi-religious, multicultural country where we could all aspire to rise above this ethnicity, religion, political beliefs to celebrate our commonality and diversity. And I guess... You know, my grandmother's Veliki Narodnikuvar recorded the food eaten across Yugoslavia. And it seemed to me to be an example of this, this idealism. You know, it seemed to capture a spirit of optimism in Yugoslavia following the war. Perhaps naively, idealistically, they say you can find yourself in any book you read. So I found my, my Yugoslav idealism in this cookbook. A significant part of our identity as, as Yugoslavs is cooking with love for people with love. So, so surely food was one of the many ways that is one of the many ways that we can unite and celebrate each other and embrace our, our respective unique cultures and identities. The smell of sarma filling begins to fill the kitchen with deliciousness and promise. Time to add the rice, about 200 grams or about a heaping cup. Again, in the Balkans, we would simply use just plain white rice. The best equivalent for this internationally would be something like risotto rice, so arborio or canaroli, or pudding rice. You just stir it through the meat and onion mixture, simply just to coat it in the juices from the mixture, not to cook it. The rice, I used arborio, will cook inside the cabbage rolls. Now I give the mixture a quick stir to coat the raw rice with the rest of the filling. So you've got your mixture, your filling is cooling, uh, set it aside, forget about it for a minute. Now you need to prepare your cabbage leaves. If you have your own, that's perfect. You can use those. If you're using ones that come in a jar or a can or however, or in a kind of a vacuum packed is available in the UK, often I find they tend to be a little bit too salty. So what I would do is soak them in a little bit of warm water just to remove some of the brine. And so you need to be very gentle and careful with them that you don't break up the leaves and select your biggest leaves. If you have bits that are in two pieces, you can combine leaves together to make one big one to roll the sarma. And then drain them after they've soaked, I don't know, maybe 15 to 30 minutes. 
and start with your largest leaves. Aim for all of them to be around the same size if you can, because then they'll cook evenly and start adding your mixture in. Basically, the idea is that you make a little parcel. You can put something like two to three tablespoons of the filling at the base of each leaf in the middle and then gently roll it over and then start tucking one side, roll again, tuck in the other side, roll, making sure there's no filling falling out and is as tightly rolled as you can get it without breaking up the leaf. Out of the two jars of pickled cabbage leaves, I'll end up with a dozen of larger sarmas, about five, six inches long, and a handful of smaller two, three inches using up the smaller leaves. It's quite a process, so while I'm rolling the little parcels one by one, I want to know more about Yankievska's cookbook, Velikinarodny Kuvar, or the Great National Cookbook. For that background, I talked to another now-Londonite, Wendy Bracewell, a recently retired professor of 37 years at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. One branch of her studies was food in the Balkans. There's a long tradition of cookbook production in the lands that formed Yugoslavia uh, that goes back to the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, people were already publishing in the languages of the region cookbooks, mostly derived from already existing primarily German compendiums of recipes. So there's a Serbian one that comes out in 1877. There's a Croatian one that comes out earlier in 1867. But really, cookbook production as as local production gets underway in the interwar period. And there's a whole series of of fabulous big compendiums meant for the practical use in the kitchen, published in the 1920s and 1930s. There's a Croatian one uh, published in Zagreb uh, by Mira Vucetic in 1929 that gets revised and revised and revised. There's a regional cookbook, a whole series of regional cookbooks, but the, the one that I'm most familiar with and that I cook from the most frequently is uh, Dika Marianovic Radice's Dalmatinska Kuchinja Dalmatian Cookery that's published in Split in 1939. But I think maybe the best example of one of these big compendiums is that by Spasenia Patamarković Mojkuvar, it's originally called, published in Belgrade in 1939, which is made up of recipes that were sent in by readers of the Belgrade newspaper Politica. So it's a real popular compendium of recipes. Now, these are the big manuals, the big interwar manuals, but interestingly, they're also the big post-war manuals. Publishers took these and reworked them a little bit and published them over and over and over in revisions in Yugoslavia for local audiences. That happens with Mira Vucetic's cookbook, uh, it happens with uh, Dika Marjanovic Radice's cookbook, and it happens big time with uh, Markovic's cookbook, which is the Veliki Narodni Kuvar. It's republished already in 1951 after the war with practically no changes to the text at all, but the publisher leaves off the author's name, I think because she was the daughter of a pre-war government minister. So her bourgeois origins and the bourgeois origins of this cookbook were being downplayed in the circumstances of the early 50s. In 1956, it's re-released under her name. I think at that point, its origins were no longer of any concern. This is the cookbook Jana Kioska inherited from her grandmother and is using in her Balkan kitchen. I believe I have what is a first edition of that particular iteration of it. So it was published by Narodna Kniga Beograd in 1956. 
It's collected and written by Spasenia Pata Markovic, who was a fascinating lady. I think she was Julia Childs of the region. She used to publish recipes starting from, I think, the early 20th century and continued to do so for eight decades. The first edition of it has 4,000 plus recipes. You know, it's nearly a thousand pages of text, no food photography or, or instructions beyond a write-up. It's fascinating to me because it's not just recipes, but it's instructions for the modern Yugoslav domacice. There's recipes, there's advice for slimming, there's recipes against various diseases like heart disease, um, you know, what to do with herbs you can find in the region, cooking methods and so on, clearly aimed at Balkan women and everything that you may need in, in your life to feed and keep your family healthy. And it's not just Yugoslav dishes, but, you know, international too. To me, it's important historically because it preserves recipes at a particular point in time. And it's quite useful that they are delineated as national because it gives me a starting point for research. It's one of a few reference texts and cookbooks on Balkan cuisine that I, I found and draw inspiration from. And it's republished many, many times in huge, huge print runs with the addition of recipes, with the addition of uh, new sections of advice to the Yugoslav housewife, to the Serbian housewife, really. It's a very nice cookbook. It's not a Yugoslav cookbook, though, in its explicit framing. Like many of the, the big manuals, all of the big manuals, the authors sort of look into their neighbors' cooking pots, but they don't set up the cuisine that they are presenting to readers as somehow explicitly Yugoslav. So Markovic's book has recipes for things like Zagreb tort or Bosanski lonats, but it's only what is Serbian that she talks about as ours. So Serbian sauerkraut, there's a nice recipe which is explicitly presented to us as, as Serbian. And the cook reads, we all know that beans and sauerkraut are the basis of our national cuisine. <laughs> and it's rare to find one of our men who won't happily consume these purely national dishes. In practical terms, you can think about it as a Yugoslav cookbook, but not in the way that it's framed. Yet even with such a detailed cookbook, the chef of today may encounter some challenges. Recipe writing 70 years ago is not what it is now. The modern rigor of writing a recipe dictates testing at least three times, sometimes more if it doesn't work, noting grammage, noting exact quantities, and noting even baking times. Whereas the recipes I've inherited that are handwritten by my grandmother are, you know, as much flour as it needs. Or my mother told me a story about when she was uh, she or somebody she knew was asking about how to make a particular a pita, which is a, a type of Balkan leaf pastry. And she asked her mother, how long do you need it? And her mother said, well, until it's as soft as a baby's bottom, you know, or 18 soup spoons of sugar or seven to 10 eggs, you know, who, who knows, <laughs> a handful of rice. And this is wonderful, but <laughs> it doesn't help me. And while my mother is much more helpful and, and has actually written, you know, certain ways, she is still also very much, you just have to try it and then it will come as if it's this mystical you know knowledge that comes with trial and error and to a certain extent it is you know you do get the feel of pastry eventually and you know how long you need to knead it and then it becomes 
difficult even for me to describe how long something means because I've got the feel of it in my fingers. And I also sometimes, instead of sharing a recipe, I will share the method because such an important part of Balkan cuisine and, and really the ethos of cooking is to be smart and to use whatever is available to you in a very clever way. So in a way, if you know the method about or the idea of how a dish is made, you can vary it. It's a bit like jazz, I suppose. You know, here's the melody and use what you have and riff on it. Because growing up, what was instilled in me beyond anything was use what you have. We don't waste food. Food is so important. You have to use what you have. The principle of a dish is the principle of a dish. And then it doesn't make it any less, I don't know, sarma, if you use onions instead of leeks, or if you use leeks instead of onions. It's sarma because it's yours. Yugoslav cookbooks and recipe columns were never entirely removed from political and economic realities. Bracewell writes in her chapter on the subject in a book about consumption in Cold War Eastern Europe. Their expanding shopping lists of ingredients and products bear witness to gradual improvement of living standards and to democratization of Yugoslav socialism's version of the good life. Not just enough, but abundance, variety, and therefore choice on the table as well as elsewhere. As supremely didactic texts, they taught the reader not just about cooking, but also what it means to be a woman, a mother, and a worker. About how to behave in society, about belonging and difference. While proclaiming the equality of women under socialism, at the same time they naturalized cooking as women's work, reinforcing the double burden of work and domestic responsibility by celebrating cooking as a labor of love and a fulfilling leisure pastime, even promoting shopping and cooking as a means of self-definition. Cookbooks published in Socialist Yugoslavia does provide an index to some of the intentions, aspirations and contradictions of Yugoslav self-managing socialism. In showing the reader how socialism's promises were being turned into easy, healthy, varied and happy meals, to use the vocabulary of the genre, cookbooks helped legitimate the system that put all this bounty on the table. End quote. There were a host of reasons why Yugoslavia did not push the ideology of Yugoslavism in food. The choice not to pitch specifically a Yugoslav cuisine, is tied to what's going on in the political sphere. It has to do with the unresolved question of what brotherhood and unity means. Okay, brotherhood is fine, it's the equal rights of all Yugoslav nations, but what exactly is unity? Is it going to be convergence under a single overarching culture? And it filters through even to the politics of cookbooks. It's something to be cautious about, pitching to a pan-Yugoslav audience, something that's called Yugoslav cuisine. Apparently, the Yugoslav kitchen was not equipped with a melting pot, Bracewell quips. This is also slightly inflected by the way that publishing worked, with publishing houses operating effectively on the territory of their republics. So they're pitching even their cookbooks to a local audience with local tastes. Cookbooks aimed at a domestic audience were becoming increasingly national, or even nationalist, writes Bracewell. Though they operated within the framework of Yugoslav brotherhood and unity in the kitchen, they also acted as manuals of everyday nationalism, labeling and systematizing recipes on a national basis, constituting difference at the same time they made it familiar and accessible. They even brought nationalist politics into the kitchen, with recipes that made cooking dinner a matter of defending tradition and resisting assimilation, since it was difficult to distinguish completely between protected expressions of cultural nationhood and prohibited expressions of political nationalism. What this meant was that culture frequently became political, even in cookbooks, given the role attributed to food and kitchen in creating and maintaining national identity. It's fair to say that right across the territory of Yugoslavia there are different cuisines. 
there are local tastes. And you could say that there was a sort of practical Yugoslavism in the kitchen that developed over the whole history of Yugoslavia that was based around global foods like pizza, everybody ate pizza, or industrial food products that you could get in markets anywhere. Or, and this is the way that I, that I see it the most fondly. In these great big compendiums that were basically a single local cuisine, but filled with clippings from magazines or newspapers or recipes that your friends had given you that come from all over the place, whatever caught the cook's eye. You know, a Belgrade housewife goes to Dubrovnik and learns how to make kotonyata, the quince paste that Dubrovnik is so known for, and writes it all down carefully, comes home and tucks it into her copy of the Veliki Narodni Kuvar. Now that's a Yugoslav cookbook. Despite the existence of a Yugoslav state, a framework for Yugoslav communication, a mobile urbanizing population, and a growing middle class, there was no such thing as a culinary literature framed explicitly as Yugoslav for a Yugoslav audience, Bracewell writes. By contrast, cookbooks for the foreign market were indeed called Yugoslav. What's happening is that the publishers have a different market, and they don't have to be quite so cautious with their politics either if if you're selling Yugoslavism to foreigners. Yeah, that's not going to cause any difficulty at home. My favorite of these Yugoslav cookbooks, explicitly called Yugoslav Cookbook, is one that was published first in the 60s in a, in a multilingual edition that was marketed very explicitly as a souvenir to tourists. It's got this charming cover of a group of people sitting around the table. It's a caricature by Zuko Jumhur, just really lovely. Each couple in their national costume, you know, all reaching for different plates of food across the table. And inside, there's a little essay that explains the history of Yugoslavia to the foreign tourist. It's not just the history of Yugoslavia and its cooking. It's, you know, we have these republics, we speak these languages, this, you know, we are leaders of the non-line movement. You know, this is the very short text that is going to tell you what you need to know about Yugoslavia. And then it has recipes broken up according to the nations and nationalities. And most of the recipes are taken from uh, Spasenia Pata Markovic's but there are some from other places as well. It's really, really nicely done. That's a, a representative Yugoslavism. There's another Yugoslav cookbook by Tito's head chef for many years, Olga Novak Markovic. Very interesting, published in English, trying to produce a sort of more integrated Yugoslav cuisine. Mostly, you know, what is pan-Yugoslav? It's mostly vegetable dishes. And from my point of view, the insistence on eating bread with every single meal. It's a, a cultural Yugoslavism that's much more integrated and that fits with her being Tito's head chef, as Tito is really the figurehead of this kind of cultural Yugoslavism. How you present yourself to the outside world it was definitely what these Yugoslav cookbooks produced for, for a foreign language market before. There's, there's another one um, by Liliana Bisenich that was, that was explicitly produced in order to give to Fulbright scholars and people either coming to Yugoslavia or going from Yugoslavia um, so that they could cook the traditional stuff that would bring Yugoslavia to the tables of foreigners. 
What emerges from all these texts, writes Bracewell, is a recognizably politicized version of culinary Yugoslavism from the carefully decentralized cuisines of the 1960s in a period when Yugoslav unitarism was under attack to the more integrated recipe books of the 1980s when Yugoslavism on the political level seemed to be eroding. But it is telling that it was primarily foreign audiences who were imagined as having an appetite for an explicitly Yugoslav cuisine. Most importantly, all of these cookbooks, they are solid culinary manuals. You can cook from the recipes and the dishes come out. They are not just to be looked at. You know, they are meant to be used in the kitchen. And I, I really value that. I think that's really, really very important. There's another really good example from 94, I think. It's Maria Canova Johnson's the melting pot, Balkan food and cookery. And that's also a fascinating look um, because what she did was travel in the late 80s, I believe, and early 90s across the region. She covers Bulgaria as well and a little bit of Romania and Albania and collect recipes that she found. So it's a very useful tool to me because I draw inspiration from these and then I go away and research it and see where I can find you know, the commonality and celebrate that commonality and say, look, yes, we make this in Macedonia, but it's also made in Serbia. But in Serbia, it's different because of the availability of the ingredients historically. Macedonia grows sunflower, so we use more sunflower oil. In Serbia, there's quite a lot of focus on pork rearing, so you would probably use pork fat. But in essence, it's a very similar and why don't we just celebrate the fact that we all eat sarma <laughs> on, on topic? And there are wonderful cookbooks being produced now, again, usually slightly more on local, national, but not nationalist lines for a domestic market and for foreigners. So I really like Zlatko Gal's various Dalmatian cookbooks, some of which come with CDs of klapa in them. So you have something to listen to while you're cooking. Andrea Pisac, who's produced a, a wonderful book of Croatian desserts in English, uh, very explicitly as, as an act of um, cultural ambassadorship to the rest of the world, which has terrific recipes that turn out extremely well. So all my sarmas are rolled and stacked on a plate. 
I'm preheating the oven to 350 degrees Fahrenheit, just over 170 Celsius. We need something like a large casserole dish or like a cast iron or a Dutch oven. I'm using a large Le Creuset enameled cast iron pot my wife inherited from her grandmother. At the base of that, drizzle a little bit of oil and any offcuts you have from the leaves. Put half of the offcuts at the base and then arrange your sarma as tightly as you can. And then you will put any meat you have in between it, a little bit of smoked pork ribs or smoked beef ribs or any kind of smoked meat you have. Some people use smoked sausages, for example. Um, Some people can just use two or three slices of pancetta. I use small slices of smoked bacon. Pack it in tightly in one layer and then do the same again, layer on top of it. (laughs) And then over all of it, sprinkle um, one tablespoon of peppercorns, whole ones, you know, three to four bay leaves and a sprinkle more of paprika. And then any leaves you have left over, cover at the top. If you don't have enough leaves left over, you can use something like uh, baking parchment. Place that over the top, add lots of water to completely cover the sarma and put a heatproof plate inside over the sarma because this is going to keep them in place. Having few leftover cabbage leaves, even fragments, I cover my sarma with parchment paper cut into a circle and weigh it down with a lid from a smaller pot. Put on your lid and put it in the oven and cook it for as long as you can leave it. How long? Yanakievska's recipe calls for four to six hours. I end up cooking it for five. As it cooks, you have to periodically check it every hour, hour and a half to make sure that it never loses moisture. So you may need to just keep topping up with boiling water. I put a baking sheet underneath the sarma pot to catch any boilover liquid. Through the five hours my sarma cooks, I add water to top off the pot twice. While the sarma cooks, I ask Yana Kievska about something in her life story that strikes me as particularly poignant. It sounds like wars of different kind have marked your life in various ways. You know, the junctures in your life story, life's journey. You study Cold War. What's the relationship of food to war, if you can speculate on that? We left Yugoslavia in the late 80s because my mother, with great foresight, saw what was ha- what was coming and almost predicted it and said, we need to, we need to leave for a better life. You know, there were terrible shortages of food, of, you know, energy. The nationalist movements were emerging in the respective republics. So we, we moved abroad and it was, I suppose, very difficult as it always is when you leave the place of your birth. So fast forward to the early nineties in Kuwait, which became our adopted home. I remember the invasion started on the 2nd of August in 1990. Quite a lot of Yugoslavs, the only way they could get back was to drive back from Kuwait to Yugoslavia. So they organized effectively a, a caravan of cars to all drive back to Yugoslavia and went via Iraq. And it's unbelievable that, you know, we're talking 1990 here. They were driving through Iraq, the invading country of Kuwait, and on the border, they were asked, you know, where are you from? They said, well, we're from Yugoslavia. Ah, Tito, no problem, go. And the Iraqis let them pass through Iraq without (laughs) any harm, (laughs) you know? So it's extraordinary the power of what the idea of Yugoslavia was, and in that moment, save their lives effectively. 
when we were back in in Macedonia and as the as the fragmentation of Yugoslavia was ongoing I remember starting school and suddenly having to quickly learn Macedonian because although I spoke it I went to an English school and so suddenly had to quickly learn so I could enter the second grade in school the books were still Yugoslavia the history of Yugoslavia by the next year <laughs> all the books changed and suddenly you were learning instead of Yugoslav history and Tito you were learning about Macedonia and you know and the history of Macedonia so there are those direct almost ridiculous things to remember from war Macedonia was different in that we were we were lucky we escaped the worst of the conflicts in the early 90s so there was no direct impact other than economic and political impact and the fact that we still had to live abroad because there was no sustainable economy to support within Macedonia at the time when we then went back to Kuwait, you know, my mother had had to leave all our belongings behind, you know, memories, photos, books. And, and I thought, well, where are all my things? <laughs> you know, what, what's happened? <laughs> what, who's taken them? Fast forward to 2001, when I was due to start university, you know, there was effectively a civil war in Macedonia. Although I was abroad, you know, I was thinking, do I go to university in Macedonia or do I stay abroad? Am I committed to living outside my home forever? And that question was almost taken out of my hands in a way because we didn't know at the time how that was going to develop or play out. I don't know if that answers your question, but the direct impact is that it pivots you out of necessity for the rest of your life. <laughs> then the pandemic hits. I often talk to friends and family about the impact of early COVID and lockdowns where we suddenly found ourselves in London in 2020, not being able to find milk in the supermarkets. And that immediately transported me back to that early 90s, you know, late 80s, early 90s in Yugoslavia, where I remember my grandmother going out at two in the morning to go queue at a shop in order to buy milk. And I hadn't realized it, that there was that almost suppressed memory or, you know, that you you are effectively triggered on in some way that food was above all the most important thing and you had to go and find some food to feed your family. I went into full Balkan mother mode <laughs> in, in terms of procuring and sourcing food to feed my family. In, you know, in, in, it seems a completely ridiculous comparison because lockdown was nothing like a war. But that is the effect of a memory in a way. With Balkan Kitchen, you're teaching yourself how to cook like your grandmother and mother to some degree. So uh, how are you doing with that? How, how far along are you? The project has essentially led me to seek a change of career, really. So again, in late lockdown last year, I ended up going to culinary school. I suddenly understood why certain things were done the way they were. It's been eye-opening <laughs> and uh, I'm on a constant learning journey. <laughs> it started with a very simple aim of, I simply wanted people to fall in love with the Balkans and, and its people as much as I am. And then it progressed into wanting to preserve Balkan culinary knowledge in a way that I was just not finding in the cookbooks, or I was finding, but it was difficult for me to interpret in a way that would work with a modern lifestyle. So I wanted to preserve the knowledge. I want to reference it. I want people to come on this journey with me of exploring the region's unique culture, its history and heritage, which I truly believe are most incredibly and beautifully preserved in the cuisine. And like me, 
there is a huge Balkan diaspora around the world who will have grown up with this beautiful home-cooked Balkan cuisine and their memories of the food they ate, but they will either not have the knowledge or the confidence to recreate it, or simply they would not know how to recreate it with ingredients that are available internationally. I guess they, like myself, will find themselves missing that taste of home or their childhood, but without access to ingredients or without the modern recipes or the passed down knowledge of making certain classic dishes, but they would still like to keep their memories and heritage alive and pass it down to their families. There is, in fact, a growing market for Balkan cuisine in the United Kingdom. There is also more in terms of companies that supply Balkan products. And, and that, to me, is indicative of the fact that people are more interested in the cuisine and therefore there is a market for these businesses to deliver Balkan products um, nationwide in the UK. So that's quite fascinating to me. There's the Serbian-owned specialist Balkan food shop Magaza, a Croatian-owned specialist food shop Taste of Croatia, producers from the region exporting to the UK such as the Macedonian Mama's Foods, and numerous restaurants, food trucks, bakeries, grocery stores, and other food-related businesses run by ex-Yugoslavs. My next guest recently wrote a lovely article titled Yugonostalgic Cuisine in a substack called Vittles about her own relationship with Yugoslavia and Yugoslav food. Natasha Tripney is a journalist and theatre critic based in London. She is also a member of a family of Serbian immigrants to the UK who in the 1960s and 70s ran Anglo-Yugoslav restaurant and club in Notting Hill. As its name suggested, it served sort of English food, fried breakfasts and um, greasy spoon uh, kind of food to mostly the sort of local market traders on the Portobello market. And then additionally, it served Yugoslav dishes, traditional dishes to the, to the exiled community there who wanted a taste of the country that they left behind. And in addition to being a restaurant, it was also a kind of social space, a kind of club. So down in Underneath the cafe itself, there was a sort of basement bar, I guess a drinking den for mostly Yugoslav men, I'd say, of that generation who'd come to London after the Second World War. My mother ended up coming to London much later. She came in the 60s and she was a waitress there. She lived there for a time. By the time I was born, she no longer lived in London. She no longer worked at the cafe, but it was very, so it was her first experience of coming to the UK. It's where she first worked when she arrived in the country. And it was very sort of pivotal to her sense of identity and her her journey uh, as an immigrant coming to London. And it's always a, a space that has held an object of, sort of fascination for me. Like I was really interested in both it as a, as a business, as a restaurant and the community that it served and its sort of place in our family history as well. After my mother left London, Tripney writes, she lost touch with the Yugoslav community. We did not go to church. We did not speak Serbo-Croat at home. The main connecting thread to the place where she grew up was the food she cooked. She maintained a link to Yugoslavia in her kitchen. The thing that was really sort of the formative part of my sense of identity, of being not English, of being from Yugoslavia, was all the food that we ate that sort of marked us apart particular dishes. So Sama was one of those. It was very sort of a central meal growing up. Rebranets, Gibanets, uh, various stuffed things, uh, stuffed peppers and stuffed courgettes. So all of these uh, dishes uh, were sort of, sort of central to my sense of who I was growing up. What we ate was different to what my friends ate. And while I didn't speak the language and I wasn't part of the diaspora community, the food that we ate was so central to our sort of sense of Yugoslav identity. 
The location of Anglo-Yugoslav restaurant and club is now a Greek restaurant. It feels that there's a, a tradition has been maintained in, in some ways, or at least it hasn't sort of ventured too far from what it was uh, in the 60s. And I, I sat um, and had a glass of wine there and you know, it, was, it was quite nice to sort of um, have that sense of connection to my family's past. Tripney points out a relative lack of Balkan restaurants, even in London, she writes. Unusually, the influx of new immigrants in the 1990s did not result in a wave of new restaurants being opened. And in London, XU food is now relatively scarce. No one is really going out to eat Serbian or Macedonian, not even Serbs and Macedonians themselves. I wonder why that is. In London, there seems to be a combination of factors. It's still regarded as, for a lot of people, as a home a home cuisine. It's, it's something that you have for your Slava. It's something that you make at home. It's something that people cook for each other, but not necessarily something that people go out to eat. Um, it's strange because, there is, in, you know, in London, we have so many Turkish restaurants. We have so many Greek restaurants. And it seems odd to me that even though that these are food cuisines that overlap with um, Balkan cuisine, that, 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 that there aren't that many or if any at all, there's a handful that I um, discovered. There's a Peckham Bazaar, which is uh, run by an Albanian chef, which sort of is pan-Balkan. There's a few more recent sort of pop-ups and start-ups. So there's Mystic Borek, which is uh, Spasia Dinkovic's online um, Instagram Borek business, which has become a huge hit over the last year or so. I've just been speaking to uh, a Bulgarian chef who's started his own uh, restaurant in Margate. So there's sort of the wider Balkan cuisine is represented, but specifically ex-Yugoslav restaurants, there are hardly any at all. And I think it's both that sense that this is home cooking and it hasn't sort of moved outside of people's kitchens into the restaurant uh, environment. And also, I think the sort of complexity of what happened with the war means that people who were coming here in the 90s had many other sort of more pressing sort of things to deal with. And starting up restaurants was not something that people were doing then and have not done since. The wars of the 1990s also marked the end of something that many people had believed in, writes Tripney. The loss of a homeland, the brutal shattering of ideals, was hard to process. With friends and family going hungry during their years of siege and sanctions, is it any wonder there was scant appetite for opening restaurants even after the war had ended? In the past few years, or should I say pandemic years, as Tripney already mentioned and as Yanakievska exemplifies, Balkan cuisine has been experiencing something of a revival. There is a shift amongst a younger generation who are sort of interested in sort of celebrating and showcasing their food in a restaurant environment or via sort of Instagram, via this kind of sort of new shift towards sort of pop-up businesses. And I, I do think we're probably going to see more of it. But at the moment, it feels like that's very much sort of the beginnings of a scene rather than anything that's sort of fully developed. I think it is a generational shift. I think it's people wanting to introduce their friends, wanting to introduce their partners to something that is part of their culture and where they come from. It's also wanting to retain something of the past. I think I think that's very clear talking to Sparcia that, that she wanted to honour her grandmother's recipes and the recipes of the women in her family. And you know, as that generation got older and started to die, you wanted to sort of keep something of them and their history and Food is one way that we can do that, that we can hold on to the past and that we can sort of maintain that continuum with the past. For me as well, I think that was pressing a sort of awareness that the, all of that generation after the war who'd, who'd come over to the UK, they, there were none of them left. That's a whole generation gone now and it's wanting to sort of maintain their stories, their experiences, their history. Uh, and one way of doing that is through food. I think it's a very powerful and evocative way of tying you to the past and a way that feels perhaps slightly easier to sort of 
celebrate and invest in that we because it, it's not as political as some other things it's a much more easier thing to celebrate i think because there's just joy in sharing dishes exploring different flavors regional differences and you you can sort of take sort of real pleasure in that and you can tell a story through food Yugo nostalgia. You don't have a lived experience in Yugoslavia, right? You were born and raised in the UK. You know, obviously you visit Serbia and so on, but uh, you don't have that. Yet you do write in your article, you often succumb to Yugo nostalgia. So how can you be nostalgic for something you don't know? That's a very good question. I think when I, I sort of succumb to the idea of it rather than the, the thing itself, there's something quite seductive and something quite comforting about the idea of what Yugoslavia was, or ostensibly, or superficially at least, was trying to be and to do. I'm well aware that it's a much more complicated story, but to just sort of blindly be nostalgic for something that you've never experienced is a quite naive sort of way of looking at the world. It's a phrase that is useful, but is also quite reductive, I find. But it, it definitely does encapsulate a sort of certain feeling or a sort of wish for all of the things that were the best parts of that idea. The idea of brotherhood, the idea of uh, mutual respect and cultural cooperation and all, all of those things that I value. And it, it's finding solace in that. My understanding of what Yugoslavia was has evolved, writes Stripney. For a long time, I felt a shifting mix of guilt and shame. Serbs felt like the villains of the world for a time in the 1990s, coupled with a sense of failure for, as a vegetarian who barely spoke the language, not being Serbian enough. Even today, it feels hard to walk a line between celebrating my heritage and rejecting the nationalism that taints it. Because I spend increasing amounts of time traveling between London and Belgrade, I am just wary of the increase of nationalism and uh, sort of myth building that's going on. It's also a complicated heritage and it's sort of a difficult line to walk. And I think that the more time I spend over there, the more my sort of sense of where I come from shifts and changes. And it's an ongoing process. It's just about being active in your thinking and always asking questions. I think that's very important in locating yourself and your sense of self. Tripney's mother returned to Serbia in 2016 after over 50 years of living in the UK. Through the lockdown-era conversations with her in her Belgrade apartment, Tripney realized that, quote, as Alexander Hemon has written, displacement is never just geographic, it's temporal too. Food can help bridge that gap, the smell of hot blackened peppers from the local green market, a curl of kaimak melting into a fresh fluffy lepine. But in the end, food can only do so much. It cannot heal every wound or bring back something that has been lost. After five hours in the oven, the sarma is done. Almost. Ideally, you would cook it kind of the night before and then let it 
let it rest overnight and have it the next day because the flavor develops lovely. Turn off the oven heat, leave it in the oven, provided you can contend with your whole house smelling of sarma. That's the hardest part. If I thought that obtaining the pickled cabbage leaves or making something that resembled the shape of sarma was difficult, it is waiting until the next day that nearly does me in. But wait I do and regret it I don't. Meanwhile, Yanukievska has her sights set on telling the stories and histories of Balkan food. And of course, there is an ulterior motive, which is that, you know, as I've gone through this journey of going from a lawyer to a training to be a chef, naturally, my path is pivoting perhaps towards food writing. And is the dream a Balkan kitchen cookbook? Yes, it's become so very much. (laughs) If there is any publishers out there listening to this wonderful podcast, get in touch. The very word Balkan itself is up for a reheating, so to speak. Here is a dish that you will find across the Balkan region. And I see my project as more Balkan because it gives me liberty to truly explore the extent or the the limit of where this dish, this particular dish has gone to and why it's gone to there. Bosnian and Macedonian cuisine will have a lot of kind of Turkish influence. Why? Because the Ottoman Empire was present longer in Bosnia and Macedonia. Uh, Croatian food in the north, it's more likely to have more of a Hungarian influence. Again, why? Because, you know, the Habsburg Empire, Dalmatia, for example, even in Croatia, it's completely different Dalmatian cuisine, again, because Dalmatia was more associated with Venice. And so Dalmatian food is more of a Mediterranean cuisine where you have a focus on olive oil, perhaps more meat than Mediterranean food because of its nexus to northern parts of Croatia and to Serbia. That's how I think of the Balkan region, I suppose. And I try and extrapolate the dish from the political and the national appropriation and just report on what I find (laughs) without any judgment, you know, hopefully without any cultural appropriation, simply with a joy of here's something interesting I found about this dish. And isn't it wonderful that we share this dish? And why don't we just celebrate the fact that we all would find a commonality by all of us eating the same dish. I always find it troubling, the use of the term Balkan as the other, you know, the bloodthirsty Balkans. Rather grandiosely, I'm trying to reappropriate the term through food and, and show, no, we are just people. And, you know, there's a commonality here. You know, the effect of me having lived around the world is that I see so much cross-cultural fertilization in food. You know, I find commonality between the food we cook in the region with food in the Middle East. And, you know, that's a wonderful example of how food has traveled and how history connects all of us in a way that we don't realize until, you know, you look into the particular history of a dish. Our cuisine is so it's so complex. It's it's very nuanced. And, and I, I truly believe it's one of the most unique and underexplored crossroads of cuisines in the world. You know, we combine ancient and modern Balkan cooking techniques, you know, cooking techniques that go back thousands of years. And, you know, we've got these historical connections with influences across the world. So Slavic, European, Caucasian, Turkish, Middle Eastern, as I mentioned, Persian. It's truly, I, I really believe, one of the original fusion cuisines. The flavors fused overnight, the next day I prepare sarma for lunch. There's one final, albeit optional, step before it goes on the table. What you can do is add something called a, we call it zaprška, which is kind of a flavored oil. Some people add flour, in my family we don't. Just heat a couple of tablespoons of oil, usually olive oil or sunflower oil. Get it searingly hot, 
add a tablespoon of paprika or or if you like it spicy chili flakes or as i said aleppo pepper or pool bear and as soon as it hits the oil and starts to sizzle take it off the heat and let it finish sizzling and then you just you know remove the plate remove the paper remove the leaves pour the oil over the top layer of the sarma and put it back in the oven under a broiler or a grill. So that gives you a little bit of a kind of a crispy paprika oil on top. And then you enjoy it with lots of bread, lots of salad, good wine, and bemoan why you only made a small batch. <laughs> I make this zaprashka, essentially a simplified roux, for two servings of sarma. One for me, one for my wife, Lindsay. Later, we have the sarma without this extra, and it's both simpler and not as oily. Slices of crusty bread go with the sarma well, and sop up the tasty juices. A dollop of sour cream cuts the tang of pickled cabbage. And, to add that lovely Pacific Northwest flavor, a glass of a West Coast IPA to wash it all down. Alright, let's eat. First a toast, with Quince Rakia I got in Vancouver, BC on the same road trip as the cabbage leaves. Jiggly. And priyatno, bon appetit, dobru chuť. Let's see here. First impressions. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Really good. It's like a country I want to belong to. <laughs> it's soft. Very savory. It's got a tang um, because of the pickled cabbage leaves. So it's got like all the right elements. It definitely tastes European. You heard it here first, folks. Sarma. Taste European. It actually doesn't matter. My husband made me a complicated dish from scratch for lunch, so... I think we need to go work in the fields after this, so... What do you think? Mm-mm-mm. I'm quite impressed with myself. (laughs) (laughs) Very good recipe. This is just amazing. I would never have thought that I would be able to make something like this. Not being a chef. (laughs) Peter, you're hired. enjoyed the sarma for two additional meals. There's something about making a lot of food that you can eat for days that feels like home to me. I've only started on my journey of cooking Balkan food. Prior to sarma, I made burek, gimanitsa, chevapi, and tulumbe. But Yanakievska's recipe is the first one I'll keep. It's just that good. 
In fact, since I spoke with her, I made another dish from her Balkan kitchen, spinach risotto, and it's a keeper too. I might just have to work my way through the entire website. I used to think food is fuel, until I traveled around the world and discovered food as a way to not just engage all the senses, but also to get to know a place, a culture. Food is now fuel for thought, so to speak. So it is with the cuisines of the former Yugoslavia, with Balkan food. The fusions, the connections, the influences, they all constitute a culinary journey through the region's complicated, convoluted history and insight into its cultures and, which is valuable especially nowadays, a way to travel without having to leave your home. So let's cook, let's eat, and let's be merry. Next on Remembering Yugoslavia. The problem is some people think that Yugoslavia was very good during its uh, history and then some bad guys came and destroyed it. Yugoslavia was a country that lasted for 73 years. On the next episode of Remembering Yugoslavia, we'll get to the absolute basics with historian Ivo Goldstein. In a bonus episode, Professor Goldstein will give an overview of the ups and downs of Yugoslavia's history. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. If you like this episode and if you like the podcast and want to hear more, consider supporting it and me in making it with a generous donation. Visit rememberingyugoslavia.com slash donate and choose from one of the options to make a monthly or one-time contribution. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich. Additional music used for educational purposes courtesy of Adela Peeva and Klapa Kambi. Music by Gogovsky and Petar Argic, licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to Lindsay Sovey. I am Petar Kurchniak. Priyatno! Mm-mm-mm.